Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. For decades, retailers have only bought fashion pieces they believe will sell. This means riskier pieces, which often represent a designer's best work, are never even presented to the consumer. Moda operandi is out to transform the long-standing relationship between consumers, retailers, and fashion designers by using data to predict fashion trends. I'm Scarlett Fu, and in this episode, my colleague Emma Chandra of Bloomberg Television speaks with Ganesh Srivats, CEO of Moda Operandi, about how the company's trunk show model lets customers purchase any piece from a designer's collection, enabling them to play a direct role in determining which fashions shown on the runway actually make it into production. Welcome, Ganesh. Thank you so much for joining us. As you all know by now, Ganesh is the CEO of Moda Operandi. Uh, we had a little overview there of Moda Operandi, but it, Moda Operandi operates in a very different way to perhaps some of its competitors when you look at luxury online platforms, the likes of Net-A-Porter, Matches Fashion, Farfetch. You have this trunk show model, Ganesh. Let's jump straight in there. Tell yeah. us how that works and why it makes Moda different. Yeah, when people ask me this question, I always like to give a little bit of a history lesson as well, because I think the founding story of every good, cool tech startup has a founding story, right? And so our founding story begins with our founder, Lawrence Santo Domingo, who is a was a fashion industry insider, you know, work worked at Vogue, um, is also a major connoisseur of fashion, and got to visit Paris and Milan and, and to go to fashion shows and actually see the stuff that's uh, on the runway but also in the showrooms of designers, way, way before any of that stuff made it into retail stores. And I think she started realizing that there was this massive disconnect between what she got to see and maybe sometimes even purchase, perhaps because of her relationships with designers, and what the end consumer ultimately got to see and purchase. And the reason is because, um, the reason is not surprising, uh, because the fashion industry, like any retail business, is a hostage to inventory, <laughs> right? And, uh, and uh, if you have to buy inventory, you have to forecast inventory. And so, um, and so buyers would come to the showrooms and have to take bets on uh, what they think the trends are gonna be in the future and how can they make big inventory bets. And like any rational person, they would have to have some mechanisms to make these bets, right? And so one mechanism was looking at historical data and saying, well, what sold last year and last season and how can we use that as a guide to think about what, uh, what we should buy for next season. And the second thing is their own gut, which is even more scientific. Um, <laughs> and, so, and so with these two <laughs> great tools, uh, they'd have to predict uh, you know, what the trends are gonna be in the future. And it's sort of a uh, challenging business because you know, the problem with fashion is that trends change really fast. And so it's hard to really understand what consumer uh, tastes and preferences are gonna be months down the line. Uh, and so, which is why, you know, oftentimes, you know, when you see stuff in stores, uh, a lot of stuff, ends, a lot of high fashion ends up in discounts, right? Which damages brand equity and also damages your margin. Um, and damages the retailers who have all this inventory. So, correct, you know, and it's kind of all this beautiful stuff then ending up in some outlets or in, in sort of liquidation and so forth. So, the, but this is kind of how the fashion industry has operated for like well since time immemorial, right? Um, and, you know, and, and, and again, I said the buyers are, are doing what is rational on their behalf. And so what they would do, I presume, is you think, you know, the more differentiated an item, the less likely they're willing to invest in it because, it, uh, because it's hard to forecast demand. Mm -hmm. and, and so in a sense, it skews most of fashion industry's uh, investments into things that are safer and probably more likely for them to see sell, sales in, right? And in that process, the, the people that are most disenfranchised, you know, the, the community that actually gets kind of screwed in the middle, is actually the consumer whose choices are circumscribed, right? whose tastes are circumscribed, uh, and the creator, the designer, who probably put a lot of love and passion into creating this collection, much of which will never see the light of day. You see this, crea this creativity diluted in a way. That's right. And so, um, and, and, this, and, and which I always use the analogy of music, because if you are an artist and musician, and you made an album of 12 songs, uh, you don't want a record industry executive telling you only three of those songs sound good enough to release and the other nine should just go into some shelf, right? And so uh, you love all your songs and you rather let the consumer decide what they like and don't like. And I think 
So, th so this is sort of the premise behind Moda, which is why shouldn't we let consumers and, and designers interact directly on a platform uh, and, let, uh, and let empower, let's empower creativity on both ends, right? And, and let them get to make the choices they want to make and, and then beautiful things can happen, right? And um, uh, anyway, so that's sort of the founding story of Moda. So that was nine years ago. And turns out she was right. I mean, she had good instincts in that there is a massive appetite uh, for fashion discovery, for people to want to have the ability to uh, express their individuality through their taste, no different than in music and in movies and Netflix and so forth. So, you know, um, and this trend is not new to, uh, in the, because uh, all of, I'm sure many of you have the Spotify app and Netflix and, and, and how uh, content, you know, has, uh, has really changed in that in the old days it used to be all about hits, right? You go to the local movie theater, you go to a blockbuster and the latest hits would be on the shelves or you go to Tower Records, you know, what CDs are available. Again, choices were circumscribed for you. But in the era of Netflix and Spotify, you don't have to make those choices because all this content is made available to you. And so... But I was going to say, in the era of Netflix and Spotify, that content is available to you right away, exactly where right. you want it. Now, the difference with murder is that it isn't because you're working on this trunk show model whereby you order something now and you get it a lot later. How does that work when we see this trend towards instant gratification among consumers? People want it now, or see it now, want it now, and a lot of retailers are willing to deliver it tomorrow, if not in the next hour. Yeah. So there are three parts to consumption, right? Discovery, transaction, and then fulfillment, right? Now in content, this can happen at the same time. In things like hard goods, like fashion, uh, inevitably there's gaps between these three uh, uh, steps mm -hmm. in consumption, right? Typically, what people talk about when they say instant gratification is the gap between transaction and fulfillment, right? Because, you know, you buy something, you want it right away. What we consider instant gratification, what our customers think of as instant gratification, is when they discover something, they want to buy it. And the reason this is a two different concepts is that back in the day, back in the old days, <laughs> there was a lot of there was information asymmetry, right, between the industry and the consumer. Because industry insiders got to see all the content or all the fashions that they wanted to see, and then they let consumers into what they chose to allow the customers to experience, right? So only when you went to a store did you even know what fashion choices are going to be available to you. And there's a lot of psychological research that indicates that consumers' choice making is circumscribed by the awareness of options available to them, right? And so if all I know is this is what's available, then I'm fine. I make my choices between them. But funnily enough, serendipitously, Instagram was born the same year as Moda, right? And so since then, what's happened is that most of this fashion content, this designer, is actually available to consumers at the same time as industry insiders can see it. And by the way, all of you can see runway shows on Vogue.com, on Instagram, or any number of channels. And so consumers are now much more aware of options that could be available to them and sense the gap between what they see in the media and what is available for them to purchase. Mm -hmm. And so we call that fashion discovery, right? So discovery happens when they see the content on Instagram. And so what we're trying to, for us, instant gratification is tethering transaction to discovery versus you discovering over here and then waiting for six months, hoping that item made it to a store. And then trying to find it. And then maybe, okay, and then fine, I get it in 24 hours, but it's a much narrower set of options, right? And so what our customers are looking for is that instant gratification at the point of discovery. And do you then also create certainty? Because if it is something that somebody wants, That's right. they know they can have it. Exactly. Uh, in terms of selling something, though, that doesn't exist, how does that work? I mean, you've seen a picture on Instagram. You've seen a model wearing it. How does it work uh, for someone who's thinking about how they might wear that dress or skirt or pair of pants? Like, How do you sell something that, that you can't go? You, there's no way really for you to go touch and feel it. Oh, Iggy Commerce, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, um, uh, it's really interesting, actually, because you are hitting on something, though, and it's, it's, which is what is making e-commerce exciting, right, uh, uh, and online uh, content experiences of any kind exciting, is that consumers are way more daring now than maybe they were used to be, where, you know, maybe uh, in the past you needed somebody to guide you towards your purchases, where women and men would look at magazines and have magazine editors tell them, hey, maybe this is the fashion trends, and so you should probably participate in those trends, right? Or you go to your stores, and your sales associate is guiding your purchases. Our customers are 
so self-confident that for the most part, they're able to make those choices for themselves without the aid, the, con the, the conventional aid of the industry arbitrating for them what is and isn't good taste. That takes quite moxie, right? Now, let's also be honest that it isn't exactly like the magazine editors are, uh, let's call unbiased arbiters, <laughs> right? Because amazingly, those things happen to be in those stores in that moment, right? And so there is a, some level of collusion, you would think, between you know, what gets called as a trend and what actually shows up in retail be stores. Be careful with the word collusion. <laughs> <laughs> there is no collusion. No collusion. You know? And so, uh, so, uh, so actually, and so what Moda is uh, allowing customers to do is dictate the trends for themselves. And that's what they appreciate is that uh, they, they treat it as individuals who can make their own decisions. Now, as much as we uh, allow for unlimited choice, we also have to enable the choice making. No different than if you went to your Spotify app, and yeah, there's a billion songs. I mean, where do you start, right? I love that I have all this choice, but at some point I need an entry point into how do I navigate all this content. And so the responsibility we have for our customers is understanding their browsing and their tastes and preferences and how can we personalize that content for them so that they can navigate our back catalog of options. Uh, and also, we do a lot of editorial in real time in the, in, during fashion season to help collate uh, all the trends that we see that walk the runway. So to the extent you kind of want to know, hey, these are some of the trends we see across multiples of designers or in Paris or Milan and so forth. They engage with that content and editorial, then the personalization. And those are the things that ultimately help them make their choices. And we also have a stylist network that works with them in real time if you choose to have somebody help you. Uh, that also, so we work on a lot of different ways in which we help enable choice. But what we will not do is curtail choice. Because you're welcome to buy anything you want, <laughs> right? But we can help you if that's what you if you need us to do that, you know. And that that reminds me of a, a retailer that really perhaps you wouldn't put in the same sentence as Modig, and that's Amazon. This idea that you have the vast selection um, yeah. and that you're able uh, to pick whatever you want from there. And Amazon has had a huge impact on the uh, retail industry. That goes without saying. Uh, luxury companies have been fairly insulated, largely because of what is sold on Amazon compared. Uh, to what you know, a luxury uh, platform or brand is trying to sell. But consumers have become used to certain levels of service, and uh, they've become level, uh, used to certain levels of tech enableness that you get from Amazon. How has Amazon impacted what you do at Moda? You know, uh, I've actually talked about this before, where I think customer expectations are shaped not just by the experience of your product or maybe products within your sector, but by every product they ever experienced, right? I mean, the fact that I can walk out of this building right now, pull out my phone, use an app, and have a car waiting for me in a minute changes my perceptions of what normal service is, right? Um, uh, and that I can actually order my groceries now. They're waiting for me in my house in 90 minutes and things like that. So to your point, I mean, the, the, that when I go to my Netflix app, that I can actually serve so much content, and that, but that homepage is 100% customized to me, that no two different people would have the same homepage. I mean, these are... Uh, technology uh, across all uh, uh, across all the technology you experience, you're experiencing various different kinds of service, and all of those are shaping your perception of what is normal. Mm -hmm. And and in, you can't anymore just look at your sector and your competitors, and you say, well, what are they doing, and how can I replicate that service level? Because that would be a very narrow-minded and limited way of thinking about consumer behavior. And to some extent, apps and Amazon is part of that trend where what when whenever Amazon goes and does things, they kind of ruin it for everybody else <laughs> because now we all have to kind of like sort of think about how do we compete with that level of service. So that's one end of the spectrum. And so definitely from that perspective, like in logistics, and the ability to bring products to people as, as fast as they do, as efficiently as they do, returns, exchanges, all those things, they became normalized. So 10 years ago, fashion, fashion e-commerce, by the way, still a very small industry. Uh, it's a $350 billion industry and only 7 to 9% of transactions yet happen online. It's actually one of the sectors that lags the most in online sales. But Bain estimates that in the next five to seven years, that uh, more than up to 25% of all transactions will, go hap will happen online. The trajectory is sharply upwards. And the industry is going to get to about $450 billion, which means $100 billion of new revenue is going to move online from offline. Right? Just a, just a seismic shift in the industry. But it began with Amazon in a way, because what Amazon taught co with consumer, consumers is that, hey, logistics allows you to try and return so effortlessly mm -hmm. that maybe if I can 
do that in fashion to where I can buy clothes, try them on at home, and return them so effortlessly, then maybe buying fashion online is not such an absurd thing to do. Because in the old days, 10 years ago, people would say, no, I don't want to buy online because I want to try it on. Mm -hmm. Well, well, if I can, it could get to my house the next day and I can return it the day after, that makes it easy. So fashion industry folks competing with that kind of service, that was astute on the part of some of our early competitors to understand that that is an opportunity for fashion to grab and run with and actually create that behavior to for buying people to and buy to online. And differentiate themselves. Correct. Now, the way we think about it is slightly different as well in that the problem is that high quality service is now a commodity, right? It is so normalized that, look, I can order a, a, a meal from the best restaurant in Manhattan and have it delivered to my house in 60 minutes, right? You're telling me- It might not be me, quite as hot as you'd have it in the you know, Sometimes even, you know? And, and, and you're telling me you can't deliver a handbag from a store in, in 60 minutes? Someone literally prepared hot food and brought it to my house. <laughs> you can't go into a warehouse, pull a bag out and bring it to me? Yeah. And so- Being able to do that isn't special isn't anymore. special People anymore, right? Because again, like I said, in a way Grubhub ruined it for everybody else, right? And Seamless Web ruined it for everybody else because they normalized that kind of logistics. And so delivering something to somebody's house in an hour or two is not, it's, it's like I take it for granted. It's normal for me. So what we want to compete on now you have to meet the customer expectations. So I'm not saying you shouldn't do it because that's not the minimum bar, that you ought to be able to do it. But then you have to compete on product differentiation, right? Which is, what are you then, therefore, but then what are you offering me that's actually special? And so, uh, and, and so what's going to happen in more and more in, I think in, in tech is, is that these services are going to get commoditized so much that how to differentiate becomes a bigger problem mm -hmm. in your product. And so what we're excited about Moda kind is that- It goes back to what it used to be. Correct, which fashion. is the product itself has to differentiate itself mm -hmm. and not the service. And I think so much of retail and, and, and competes on service and price, but those two things can't give you true competitive advantage anymore. You know, And, and then what you're doing then when you are competing both on service, price, how people shop, but also what they're buying, is you're able now to capture a huge amount of data about your customers. How are you using that to change the business, to make business decisions uh, for Moda? How does that feed into the future strategy? Yeah, so uh, uh, look, I mean, it's no secret that data is, uh, is fast becoming one of the biggest assets. Uh, but, you know, but we're also uh, very thoughtful about how we use data. So first and foremost, you know, um, Personalization, right? So it's extremely important. I've said this before as well, like that that uh, pr privacy is a form of currency, you know. And that people say, well, aren't you? Uh, what What are you going to do with all this customer data? Well, we're going to make their lives easier and better. That's the trade-off that the customer. The reason the customer is willing to give you their data is because they want a service back from us that is even better. And so, how do we use uh, customers' buying preferences, behaviors? Uh, uh, as a way to improve our service quality to them, to personalize the content we deliver to them, and so forth. That's actually first and foremost, so that they see stuff that's relevant to them, that's interesting. Also kind of pushes them a little bit, you know, because I don't think people want to necessarily always see stuff that's exactly what they're used to. They don't want an exact reflection of what Because I know, you, you can sort of data science your way to a singularity, mm -hmm. right? Where everything becomes a mirror of everything else that you've ever done before. You're like, how do I get out of addresses. this? You know, this, how do I get out of this like, you know, construct, this mirror, a hall of mirrors, right? And so part of what you want to see in, in personalization is that you also challenge the consumer a little bit by putting content in front of them uh, you know, that maybe kind of surprises them a little bit. And so when you build your algorithms, you've got to be careful as to not get too sort of caught up in the sort of repetitive nature of Anyway, fashion, luckily, our content expires every six months. You get something new. Right? And so you literally have to start everything from scratch because all of your data could somewhat become irrelevant in some level when the new trends come into play. But anyway, it's a different story. Um, the second thing is that, you know, to the extent that we have this amazing consumer that is so discovery oriented, that wants to know next season's trends now, that wants the ability to purchase it now, turns out they also are basically, these early adopters are prognosticators of what future fashion trends are going to be. We saw data that when I came on board, very clearly that the items that we end up selling on Trunk Show and selling well, actually have huge correlations to what items and that we will end up selling in our what we call boutique business, mm -hmm. eventually because we also carry inventory. 
and that and the metadata that we collect on all the customer purchases actually is a strong indicator of future fashion trends so that not only can we know individual items that are going to be successful or certain designers that are going to break out and have a huge mm -hmm. season because they just are having a moment but we can also somewhat tell the colors the fabrics the silhouettes right the uh, and the patterns that are going to be big trends in the future in six months from now so you, you have yourself a, a better informed buyer traditional buyer in a way someone who's kind of predicting things but it's not with their gut it's with uh, with the data yeah, that they've seen from no your previous like basically like a test group of customers in a way are those ones who go for things in the trunk show exactly right and so it's a sampling and so in terms of customer transactions is a much better way to predict future trends than your gut you know what customers actually buy <laughs> and it's really important to emphasize the word transactions because that's what makes moda really unique because today people say, well, you know, I'm collecting all this data on Instagram, and I collect all this data on Facebook and all these channels. Yeah, but anyone can like anything they want, right? I like airplanes. <laughs> Don't start remarketing planes to me, you know? <laughs> There's no way I'm gonna buy one. So you gotta be careful. That's where data can sometimes be counterintuitive, right? Counterproductive. But there's, but transactions, I mean, that's a serious vote. Like, that's actually somebody willing to put money behind their taste, right? And so, and that really, because, and so the, the, a Moda collects transaction data. So what we then look at is, well, what are the trends gonna be? And so more and more what we're doing is how can we make our inventory investments based on that data? Mm -hmm. And we have seen enormous success very quickly with that, and we're gonna really go after that. And that goes down to particular products as well? Individual products, but also, like I said, meta trends, okay. where if we see certain color palettes or certain, I don't know, polka dots or whatever are gonna be the big, I'm not the fashion end of the <laughs> business, you know? But I polka dots probably a thing. But you know, well, so purple. it's uh, purple. Be the color. Yeah, that's it. And so that's that's the next level for us. The thing is, it's also not about only Moda benefiting from this, because we also want to let the ecosystem of fashion derive benefits from this. And so for this, thirdly, what we're doing is how can we take this data back to the designers and brands that we work with and allow them to make smart inventory decisions with our data. And this is really important to us because, because it's adding what we call adding ecosystem value. Because ultimately, we want the consumer to benefit from better choices that brands and retailers make, right? And also retailers make better choices so that it's more sustainable for their business and for the environment so that not so much inventory has to be produced that nobody wants. So there, is, there must be a little conflict for you there as well, because if you provide them with this data, designers are not exclusively working with Moda that allows them to better uh, sell either independently, like a lot of the luxury uh, houses are doing now, doing their own direct-to-consumer uh, uh, channels, but also other designers and then how they uh, perhaps interact with department stores. So how do you, I, I know it's at an early stage, but how yeah. do you marry that? How do you, how, how do you balance that? Yeah, I mean, from our perspective, we would love for them to benefit from it. And in fact, we would be happy if they share it with their retailers and everyone actually, and that we are able to have maximum impact on the ecosystem. I mean, that's sort of Moda's mission and vision, which is how because can we- Because if you sell the data back to them, because you're a business at the end Absolutely. of the day. Absolutely. Look, I mean, you know, one of the things like, look, uh, you, uh, don't underestimate the power of inertia uh, in that as much as we would love to see the industry move in the positive direction, uh, there's a huge amount of uh, institutional inertia, right, and, and uh, in the existing industry uh, about how things ought to be done and will be done and so forth. So that's not for us to speculate on, and I think people will have the adoption that they will take. Over time, we will figure out the economics of the value that we're creating and how do we actually derive that economic value between us and the, and the designer and the brand. It's not something that is completely monetized. Exactly, because, you know, because we're just in the early stages of developing this and we have a long road ahead of, from technology and data science perspective to go down this direction. But we see the potential in the long run to have this big impact. Now, why is this really important? I mean, Zara has built a $30 billion business doing just that, right? Because they watch for all the high fashion trends that hit retail stores, what becomes trendy, what becomes fashionable. Within two to three weeks, they can have that product manufactured in the factories in Spain and in all of the stores globally, right? We know those trends six months earlier now because they, the problem before was when those clothes hit retailers like Saks and Bloomingdale's and, and Neiman Marcus, et cetera, it's too late for them to do anything about- They can't change their decisions. Right? And so you might have just about bought all your best sellers and your worst sellers in the same quantities, right? Versus now, 
we, if we can tell you that they're six months ahead, maybe we can beat Zara at their own game, right? And so, and, and, and in fact, one of the biggest things that have challenged the fashion industry's dominance in the last 10, 15 years is actually fast fashion, mm -hmm. right? At minimum, because customers want access to those trends and luxury department stores don't have any left, you know? Uh, and so I think, again, not, we're, we're not quite there yet, but we see it. The, the potential to make that contribution. You know? And what has been the response from the brands and the designers that you work from? Like They're very excited. I mean, you know, because look, we, we work with over a thousand designers and everyone has their own journey, their strategy, their, their pathways. But on average, we've found very receptive audience in, in the part of the designer and brand community and they're hungry for that information because they all have the same problem. Because ultimately, look, in the last 15, 20 years, the fashion industry has really moved away from fashion, you know? And, and because of this fast fashion threat, right? And so when you say, why does the fashion industry, why have they gone so hard into accessories, mm -hmm. into handbags, into shoes? It's because fashion ready to wear is extremely hard to design, to manufacture, and to retail without the forecasting ability that they need, right? And so especially- And at the margin that they want. And especially when Zara and all these other companies have really grabbed that share by being able to deliver this product to consumers much faster. And so many of the biggest brands have really shied away from it. And, 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 and they have found other ways to uh, monetize their brands uh, through their accessories or more accessible sort of ready to wear, like you know, it could be denim and t-shirts and whatnot and the more accessible products. And so what we're excited about is again, empowering fashion creativity mm -hmm. and putting fashion creativity back at the heart of the industry and, and giving the designers a mechanism by which they can go back to the thing they love to do, which is design clothes. So data allows for this renaissance in, uh, in creativity Correct. in fashion. Correct. Um, what we're talking a lot about here. Oh, your mic's on. Oh, there you excuse go. me. There we are. Thank you. Tech. We're talking, we're talking about tech. I was going to say, we're talking about this uh, interplay between fashion and tech. And it's not something that certainly in the last a uh, few years, or at least if you go back 10 years, that you often thought about as technology and fashion, going hand in hand, yeah. working together. Um, your background is one that is has done that a great deal. You were previously worked at Tesla. Before that, though, you studied fashion in, in the UK, and then you worked at Burberry uh, for a long time. Why do you think it has taken such a long time for fashion and tech to, to embrace, each other, embrace each other? And have they, you know, how much further have they got to go in that regard? Yeah, um, I don't know that, I, I suppose I can give a couple of hypotheses, uh, and there are probably reasons that are attributable to consumer behavior, mm -hmm. but also the behavior of brands and retailers. Mm -hmm. On the consumer side, we spoke about that a little earlier, right? Unlike uh, content, you know, online digital content, um, you know, fashion, especially high fashion, uh, is, a, is a high investment for anybody. Mm -hmm. and. The, uh, until logistics could catch up to it, right? People are reticent to buy something that then it's a big hassle to return it, and what if it doesn't fit? And today, logistics has transformed that because I can order the same item in three sizes, see what fits me, return the, uh, you know? And so these sorts of things are really sort of furthered consumer behavior towards consuming fashion online. And you've also seen new kinds of business models, renting, reselling, and all kinds of stuff coming in that has increased the adoption curve on the consumer side, right? Because people feel like the barriers to entry are lower and lower. On the supply side, you know, let's be honest. I mean, the fashion industry has been very insulated because the catalog of fashion is, uh, uh, scarcity uh, has been one of the things that has kept the industry uh, in a, uh, successful. Mm -hmm. uh, and so competition is hard to come by in fashion, right? Because a small number of retailers carry all the designers uh, and there's sort of insiderism in there. So a, a threat like Amazon and others couldn't really penetrate it. And so in a sense, protected and insulated the industry from having to innovate as fast as some of the other sectors where those barriers were not there mm -hmm. uh, in consumer electronics uh, or, or even in, in fast fashion, right? So luxury fashion especially, where the number of people that are allowed to carry a brand's inventory are very limited. And so it's really restricted it. And so the brands have very intentionally restricted that access. And Branson, and because I came from Burberry and we had many of these conversations, and back in those days, Burberry was considered a pioneer in, in, in digital innovation. But there was a real concern also about online discounting because look, as long as what, what happens within the four walls of your store, fine, right? But when you put something online, the whole world can see it. And the brands were not quite ready to understand like, what are the implications in terms of how the brand is perceived, what, you know, the, the, the marketing, the visual identity, the pricing, 
the promotions, and all the dirty stuff that happens in the business now visible to all. And that scared them. But I think now they all understand that, hey, whether you're going to come along or not, the consumer is going there. And so the consumer is acting like gravity. Because a new generation of consumer raised on Instagram, like I talked about, and also raised by people like us, <laughs> right, uh, is coming into play. And the customer is demanding that kind of service. And so now the industry is, and you know, once that um, the, the dynamic kicks into gear, right, the velocity is accelerating, right? So the consumer is moving fast, so the retailers are having to move faster, and then and so on and so forth. And it's a very positive dynamic, right? But then let's talk a little bit, I guess, about what we could call in terms of the back office then of, of fashion houses. I mean, now you know, you've talked a lot about the data side of your business, Moda increasingly becoming a bit of a tech company as well yeah. as a fashion company. How do you bring uh, those people who might uh, go and look for jobs at Google, at Apple, at Tesla, how do you bring them into the fashion world? Because I would imagine it's perhaps not an area that people with those uh, backgrounds, that education might think that they would fit into or that there is a need for, or, or perhaps I'm, I'm wrong in making this assumption. Yeah. Well, first thing I tell people is, you don't have to, have to wear the clothes. <laughs> you could just work with us, you know? <laughs> like Why people, wouldn't you want to wear the clothes? Like, you've just to told say, us how great they are. You know, <laughs> say, well, you know, I'm not into fashion. It's like, I don't ask you to dress in Moda clothing. You just have to work in Moda. Um, you know, uh, look, I can actually take myself as an example, hopefully, because I left fashion. I left the fashion industry for the same reason, because I felt like, as much as I loved the industry and you know, fashion as a commodity, I didn't feel like I was being challenged enough. And with all the technology advancements happening in the world of, well, in the world, <laughs> I wasn't feeling like I was participating in it. And I, I wanted to go to Silicon Valley, and uh, and experience that, and had a blast. But when Moda came along, it actually made me uh, think, well, I could actually go back to the industry that I love, but work in a technology uh, company. And, and, with the tech. and so um, being the ability to marry fashion and technology was exciting to me. And secondly, it's rare that you get to disrupt an industry, leave alone a company. Right? These opportunities come very, very rarely in a person's life. Like, who cares about the next car share company? <laughs> like you know what I mean? There are or, millions of them. You know, who cares about the next food rent, a food delivery company? Like there's six in New York already. Like you know, and so I, I, I think one we have to think about and say like what what when you look back at your career, like do you at least have one or two opportunities to disrupt a company or even disrupt an entire industry to transform an industry? And luckily, because fashion's been kind of late, there's still this available because most other industries have somewhat gone through this revolution, right, of the internet, you know? And so that's exciting to me. So if, I, if I'm out there looking for something new and exciting to do, I think you could do a lot worse than consider from the fashion industry right now because a lot of exciting innovation is happening in this industry. And it's not just Moda. Like I said, there are rental companies and, you know, you talk about people sending you boxes at home and, you know, I'm not naming any companies, right? So, you know, and so all this innovation happening. And so I would encourage people to think about it because it's a very exciting time to work in this industry. It's actually a way to be very creative with your technology Absolutely. background. And there's also hard technical problems to be solved. So it's not just about saying, well, okay, I can transform an industry. Uh, like what we do, pre-ordering an item, waiting for six months, and how do you deliver a great experience? Personalization, machine learning, data science. Because like I said, look, in Amazon, I don't know what I looked at six months ago, you know, but they've been hammering me in remarketing, right, with the same stuff. Where you, don't, you, you can't do that in fashion because the attributes of an item are really complex. Like you can easily understand this is a stereo system, that is a, bowl, a, a roll of bounce, uh, I don't know, like you know, paper or whatever, you know. Like in fashion, every item has very unique attributes. And so how do you correlate this item, the attributes that item has, with every other item that you have in your catalog and make the connection between if you like this, you might like, like that. that. Right. It's a very complex problem, right? Is that, is that the problem that is sort of top of mind for Moda right now? For every uh, a fashion industry uh, a company, I'm sure, and definitely for us, right? And so there's a lot of AI work going on right now in visual search that is becoming relevant to us because previously, not to bore everybody with the tech, but you would have to identify, there are companies that have identified up to 5,000 attributes per garment where you can understand if the item has a frill on the shoulder or like what kind of cuffs does it have, you know? 
What kind of buttons does it have? And so that if I click on one shirt, in real time, the algorithm will resort the entire page for all the shirts with frills and weird buttons and whatever it is that you like. Because what is interesting about fashion too, right? Because this idea of using past purchases to determine future choices is a very fraught idea in fashion. Because just because I bought something six months ago, how you discover something today is maybe you walked in the street and you saw somebody wear, wearing a gray sweater. And that's what you're looking for today. So how is it relevant that I bought all this other stuff six months ago? Because what I'm really looking for is a sweater that has this exact detail that I saw discovered today on Instagram or on the street. And so visual search is extremely important. So because now people are trying to do that with attributes before, but really excited about visual AI. So we're implementing that right now, testing it as a way to really replicate and say, how can I visually read what you're looking for? So it's a lot of very interesting new technology coming in that's going to make it exciting, but it's still hard, right? Uh, managing physical inventory and moving it all across the world in real time. If I order something, is it in stock? Can you get it to me in 90 minutes? And how do I optimize that, that pathway? is really hard compared to a pure tech company where you only have an online experience, you don't have the physical experience to connect with, right? So for example, one of the things I love is grocery retail. Mm -hmm. It's a very complex problem. If you don't want to work at Moda, go work in grocery retail, right? <laughs> They're all uh, very competitive. Extremely, but it's an ex exciting field right now because I was talking to somebody today, like you, if you order something and you, and you want to come pick it up in a store, you can't pack it too early, you know, like cold storage. Mm -hmm. See, I can't take your milk and leave it in a box lying if you're late by two hours, that milk is going to go bad. So I literally have to know when you're going to come into a store and pack your bag five minutes before you come. How do I know that? Like, so really complex problems in retail. And so if we don't have X, what do we replace it with? Correct. And so I think that's, uh, I think the retail and especially luxury fashion retail presents really complex techni technical problems that people underappreciate. Because maybe they think, that, well, this industry uh, you know, may not be open to technology. And I think this is a very exciting time, therefore, for you to be a pioneer. And maybe you are the one who's going to fix those problems. You know? Do you think that is a compelling narrative? Are you starting to see more people with this sort of background thinking, that's really interesting to me? Or are they still very much like, yeah, but I could go and work at Apple? Look, I mean, I, th I think uh, I, I, in the end, uh, you know, every person has to make the decision for themselves. And uh, look, there are times when you may want to go work in a large company and have all the nice, you know, RSUs and nice canteens and all this kind of stuff. And there's a time to get scrappy and roll up your sleeves and be in a startup and really experience the thrill of entrepreneurship, of making an impact and building a company. And so we see both kinds. You know, some people say, well, you know, I like it over here at Facebook. They have sushi at lunch, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, well, you yeah, you got an excellent Moda? point. That's right. you know? It's a very fashion lunch that you would have. <laughs> you know, we usually be eating pret, you know, because we're too, we're too busy working. And, and, there are, and so, but we have been able to, I'm lucky to say, uh, uh, happy to say that we've been very lucky to attract some exceptional talent in the last seven, eight months by building this narrative. So, you know, I have my CFO uh, was from Etsy. Oh, was at Etsy, now with us. Uh, my chief product officer came from Grubhub, and previously was at Arbitz and Expedia and so forth. I have engineering leaders from ZocDoc and Gilt, and so, and, and the list goes on. Uh, you know, Ali here came from Tesla and Uber and Twitter, and so we've really managed to He's attract. He's going around poaching people. Yeah, exactly, you know, but, and, and this is an important point too, because the least important thing for me that is that you have fashion industry experience, right? I mean, in the sense that absolutely we have terrific people from the industry. We have fantastic buyers and editors and curators and so forth, and that's great. But we also want a real diversity in thinking. We want people that have solved complex problems in various different kinds of environments. And, and so that we don't end up with groupthink, because that's how industries go down. That's how and they that get disrupted. That's the problem with fashion and, right? and, and the car retail. industry, which I really I know a lot about. Right, in that it, it, groupthink is our, and, uh, our biggest enemy. And so it's very important to mix that industry knowledge with people coming in from very diverse environments and life experiences with very different skill sets and problems that they've solved and pull the two together. So that when my chief product officer comes in, has like no clue about fashion. I love the kind of questions he asks because they're very foundational, very fundamental, right? First principles thinking, why does this look this way? <laughs> And you can't roll your eyes at him. You have to explain it to him, you know? And so it's, a, and then that creates an interesting dialogue because you say, well, but couldn't we just do it this way? And like, well, yeah, I guess so. But that's how we've always done it. Like, well, so what? You know? And so we're in a very interesting period of experimentation and kind of rethinking the so-called norms and rules of the industry. Uh, and because the consumer can, is telling you what their preferences are and we should be responsive to them versus talking about norms and rules that were laid down by who knows who for what reason 40 years ago. You started uh, when I was talking about 
your background and how you've been at Tesla and how that sense of moving away from fashion into a more tech uh, company and then actually the opportunity at Moda to come back and marry the two, uh, that you obviously brought a lot of lessons from what you had learned at Tesla. Uh, would it go the other way, having been at Moda now for nearly a year? I mean, is there any advice for Elon Musk? Oh, uh, <laughs> I mean, his stock is down 35% this year. So. Well, when I was there, it was much better. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, look, I mean, uh, Tesla was, uh, was a phenomenal uh, life experience, and also I love the product. I own a car still, and uh, you know, I and I have still have a lot of friends there, and uh, I wish them nothing but the best because uh, you know it's hard what we did and what they're doing, and there's there'll be ups and downs, and that's kind of how we have to see ourselves here at Moda, right? Anytime you do something new, something different, you're gonna face skepticism, right? Naysayers, people. Oddly, looking for you to fail so that they can confirm their biases. It's a very odd thing, right? It's sort of a very twisted way of thinking, you know. And uh, and I think you can be distracted by those kinds of things because ultimately you have a certain amount of belief in what you're doing, and you're also keeping the correct north star, which is what is your mission? What? Are, why are you doing this? You know, how is this adding value to the consumer, and and to the creator? And and if you can keep that focus on that then the rest is just noise and, and, and you have to persevere. And that's one of the big lessons I took from that experience, right? Because absolutely you face, uh, because we're at, we're at the beginning of this, because I'm only eight months in and all nice and making talks and everything and we'll see in a year, right? And so, uh, but, but that's the thing. There will come times where doubt will creep in because things will get hard, but those are the times you have to really tell yourself like you're doing the right thing and for the right reasons, you know? But you're doing all of this um, at Moda, but another big area, similarly to Tesla, but also similarly to uh, the rest of the luxury industry, is expansion, and that means geographic expansion. Obviously, China, Asia, a big part of that. You're opening a new headquarters uh, in Shanghai, not in Hong Kong, interestingly, um, very much in mainland China. Uh, how much of that is a growth area? How much will that change the business? Uh, also, are you a bit late to be getting into China? You know, we know that LVMH, Rishma, all of them are, are there and have been there for some time now. Yeah, it's impossible to be late in China or early. <laughs> That's the odd It's thing. just always the right time. Because Ch China is changing so dramatically and so fast that the idea that you can have any kind of incumbency advantage is sort of like a, uh, you know, it's a false confidence, right? Um, you know, very few uh, Western companies have actually even been successful in China, frankly speaking, right? Many of them have had to pull out. Mm -hmm. And we've studied that really closely. Uh, it's a reason why, and in especially luxury fashion, the brands have done a great job, I'm sure. They established themselves really well. But e-commerce and tech companies in fashion have not really got, got a major foothold in China yet. And there are many, many reasons why that you know we don't have maybe have time to get into today, but certainly the space is wide open. And our perspective, look, international expansion is a major part of Moda strategy because we are very, we've been very dominant in the U.S. within ourselves, and now we see the big opportunity in Europe, Middle East, Asia Pacific. But China is a singular opportunity for no for the obvious reason that it's the largest luxury market in the world today. Mm -hmm. And we'll be, we'll be, spending right now. and we'll be fifty percent of world spending by the next decade, right? So it's not, a, and, and so that's why I don't think it's late, but I also don't think it's early because you have to get in there. Mm -hmm. You got to start building your brand. We think our our proposition is very unique for China because that that consumer first and foremost uh, 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 they love choice and they love access, they love exclusivity. Mm -hmm. They love the kind of values that we represent within fashion, where like you know they want to have the ex the access to the best, right, uh, and the most exciting. Do they product. like the discovery side of it, which is Absolutely. a huge part of Moda? Because right? we think of them as you know we think of China as being somewhere where the big brands have gone, and they like uh, Chinese customer likes the idea of buying into a certain brand. Are they going to be as excited about the thousand designers that you have on Moda? Yes, you know because they may like certain brands, but if you ask any brand, who their wildest consumer is that buys the most extreme, the most innovative, the most forward-thinking fashion is always young Chinese consumers, right? I mean, the level of daring in that country, the level of experimentation is exceptional. And that's one part of it. So we're excited about that because we can take our young designers and we can take them to China and we can also bring Chinese designers onto our platform. That was another question I was going to ask. Will Absolutely. you start bringing Absolutely. that world you know, of design and creativity that perhaps us here in America and Europe are not exposed to. Right, we already work with Korean designers, you know, Japanese, and next up is China, right? The second thing, what I actually find really exciting in China is the product innovation. 
I mean, China has a completely unique ecosystem, right? As we all know, like you know, WeChat and uh, uh, you know, uh, and Alibaba and uh, Tencent and all these companies, Baidu. And what is interesting is that the, that, but that's okay. That's one thing. That, okay, they have they have separate domains, but the speed at which those domains uh, are evolving and the level of consumer responsiveness they have, I think, far outstrips what I've seen in the U.S. And I think we could do in the U.S. a lot worse than bringing a whole bunch of talent from China into America to show us how to innovate. And the innovation happens over there because they're extremely attuned to consumer preferences and consumer behavior. And, and they innovate extraordinarily fast against that. Whereas here, and also especially in Europe, we get a lot of caught up in a lot of norms and rules that have no relevance <laughs> to ultimate in consumer Europe, experience. In Europe, no, right? surely not. And uh, <laughs> but this is how we've always done it since the fifth century, you know? Like, it's and history, so, it's called yeah, Exactly, history. and so, and I love that sort of completely swashbuckling, rollicking innovations happening in China. So the way we think about China is that we're going to build a product in China from the ground up. And we're going to let that consumer dictate completely how they want to experience the Moda platform. We're not going to be imprisoned by the app that we have or the website that we have. And how can we change that to Chinese characters and try to push it on the Chinese mm -hmm. consumer? Versus, we're, so we set up, that's why we set up the office in Shanghai, not a Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. Because another conceit about China is that people can manage it from Hong Kong. But why do they do that? It's because they speak English. It has nothing to do with how Hong Kong can help the Chinese consumer, right? And because Western executives find it convenient. We also don't have an Asia-Pacific strategy, because that's another kind of conceit. Because what does the Japanese consumer have to do with Chinese or Korean, for that or matter? Indian or exactly. So mainland China is our focus, office in Shanghai, a fully dedicated product engineering, marketing, and operations team that will, from the ground up, build a new moda for the Chinese consumer. If that takes longer, that's fine. But in the long run, we think we'll be more resilient and possibly avoid some of the pitfalls that we've seen some of our competitors, or at least other American companies, face. You know, And so anyway. Well, I mean, if that's not an exciting proposition, I don't really know what, what is. Uh, with that, I feel like we have some time to open things up to questions. There are a lot of people in the room. I'm sure there must be a number of people who'd like uh, to ask you uh, questions. Yes, look at all those um, hands going up. I'm going to go straight to this gentleman here. Um, yes, you just turned around. You. <laughs> Um, Do you want to tell us who you are and, and where you're from? Uh, yes, yeah, so my name's Alex. Um, I work at a company, Curalate, uh, in the UGC space. But um, my question was, you guys had all of the uh, emerging men's designers from the CFDA uh, awards, and I don't think that was by uh, your gut. Using data and giving it to people who maybe don't know how to work with it, like a data scientist, how do you guys employ um, democratizing data inside the organization to let people make these informed decisions, people who may not actually um, be used to working with data to make these really six months out accurate uh, predictions? You mean, uh, well, so we talk a lot in the company about tech and data literacy, right? In that uh, these are concepts that are not sort of like, okay, we'll worry about this in the data science team. You merchants, like, you know, you guys do your thing. So everything we do, we talk about. Uh, within the company across all teams and I have a meeting once a month with the entire company and we talk about our strategy We talk about how we have to work, but we're also very actively creating these links between Engineering product and data science on the one hand and our buyers and merchants and marketing teams on the other hand So even literally today and yesterday because we're in this pre-fall uh, sorry, resort buying season um, and I had in my office today my data science and head of analytics my head of merchandising and buying and my CFO and head of finance Right, and and we were deciding the buy strategy for resort. Like that probably would not have happened is six to eight months ago, a year ago, right? Because you would have been all the merchants and uh, sitting with the uh, and deciding what they're going to do, and the data science team was putting up on the screen the charts around structured data and what trends we're seeing, what sell throughs we're seeing, etc. And then we're dictating, okay, then this is kind of the multiples you're going to buy based on da 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 da. And so it's it's creating that constant engagement between the teams and creating that dialogue. One. Second is giving people belief. As much as you can show people data, gut is a very powerful force, you know, wrong as it can be. And, uh, and it's hard for people who have spent a lifetime cultivating their gut and being trained to listen to it to suddenly say, ignore it because the data tells you otherwise. Um, and say, yeah, but you know, all my being is telling me that we should do and go after yellow. And like, no, customers like green, you know? And so, I think so, what we also try to, that's number two, which is trying to give you, instill that belief. And I have to do that, because I have to say, it's okay if we fail, because this is what we need to do to figure out the future, right? And so maybe we'll even make a mistake, but that's okay. Um, 
And, and number three, allowing for discretionary decisions, right? Because what I'm also not doing, but you're not doing is saying, okay, 100% is data focused. It's not dictated by that. What percentage is data driven? What percentage is discretionary? It's like it's a pressure valve, you know? And so, uh, and so creating a little bit more of a hybrid on the way to perhaps a future in which data more and more and more dominates. And so that you're bringing people along and as they see successes, uh, then they are obviously more reaffirmed in that position. So it's a cultural shift, right? No doubt about it, but it comes with that constant engagement and putting these forces together versus isolating and separating them and, and not letting each other understand each other's motivations and how they think, you know? Because as much as we may make data-based decisions on inventory, who the next hot designer is going to be? My fashion director is the one who knows, right? Because the it's, gut is informed by other Because by it's A&R. It's that person who goes to a bar midnight on a Friday in Cincinnati and is listening to some band, and you're like, you're going to be the next star. And there's no way data can let you do that. And that's where all the magic starts, right? And that's human gut. We, our ears, our, our sensibilities. And then what we do is we bring them into the platform, and then we test them. Then we let the consumer dictate, OK, well, was our gut right? But then you have to give them enough of a chance and say, because, you know, again, collection center. So it's a combination. It's never going to be one extreme or the other. You don't want it to be, because then life gets too boring if, also, if it's only one thing or the other. You know? So the idea is then to not, make, not let those sides be siloed. It's Correct. And, and also true creativity and experience uh, can also come from those kinds of heavy risks. Where I'm just going to go discover a designer. I'm going to put them in the platform and see what happens. But the cool thing about the platforms allows you to test. Because we don't carry inventory, I don't have that much of a downside in giving that person a platform and seeing what happens. And if after enough time, the consumer just doesn't respond to it, say, listen, we think you're fantastic, but unfortunately, you know, the consumer is not interested. So That must be a really easy conversation yeah, to have. Yeah, I let my team um, handle it. <laughs> what's the next conversation? There's a lady just right here with a very cool hair clip. I feel like we should comment on fashion choices. <laughs> I appreciate that, honestly. Hi, I'm Austin. Um, I'm actually a former magazine editor turned freelance content creator, so just trying to keep up with this ever-changing industry. Um, I was wondering if you could speak actually a little bit about influencer marketing and how that has changed not only Moda's retail business in terms of the seasonality and being able to see runway shows immediately as they're happening, but also from a more positive impact, I'm sure, which is the fact that hashtag MyModa is always on my Instagram feed. <laughs> Um, it's a great question, you know, because Revolve just IPO'd, I think, like literally this week or something. Um, and, and so, you know, there's a place for, look, uh, what we think about is fashion discovery. We did a consumer survey. 100% of our consumers said, hey, what do you value about Moda? We think of Moda as, a, as a, an engine for fashion discovery. You give us access to unique and special things that we can't get anywhere else, and you give us access to emerging designer talent that we can't find anywhere else. So, but, so what we really hone in on is discovery, which is, what is discovery? It's shopping without intent, right? You don't really know what you want. Like when you go to Instagram, it's not like you're like, I want to see only these kinds of posts today, right? You just let that stream wash over you. <laughs> Whatever comes next is fine, you know? And, and that's kind of the intent with which people come into Moda. They want to let things just happen to them, which we love. Now, when you think about discovery, discovery happens in lots of different ways. Like I said, sometimes you come in, we are just showing you relevant content based on what we think we know about you through personalization and data science and so forth. Other times, you want, you want a magazine kind of experience because you start just in a browsing mode. You're like, I want to read some flick, articles. Flick some pages. It's like, you know, it's like travel. Sometimes you're like, I want to go to Greece. Let me go find an island. Or sometimes you're like, I'm just reading a travel magazine, and today I'm just kind of browsing, and something catches your eye. And you say, oh, I want to go research this a little bit more because that looks interesting. And, and sometimes it's. Our founder and other influencers we have on our platform, we have something called Lauren's Closet. It's one of the top performing franchises on Moda because people kind of want to know what Lauren is into the season, right? And so, and by the way, all these three things could be the same person. And so I think consumers are annoyingly complicated and they want to do different things at different times. And actually that's kind of, jokes aside, that's kind of really fun. Also keeps it very challenging because you can't pigeonhole them into something. So we look at all forms of discovery and how to enable choice making, and we embrace all of them. Uh, that doesn't make it sort of like, because they have all, you know, there's lacks of focus or whatever, but you know, in the sense that we let the consumer dictate how they want to experience the content, let's put it that way, right? And so, yes, we think there's a big role for influencers, and for that, on the one hand, where individuals dictate 
what they like and that people decide whether they like that or not. And also the Moda Authority through our magazine and editorial and also through data science and personalization. And probably there's more, one or two things I'm missing, you know. Um, yeah. Another question from this side of the room. Uh, the lady right in the back of the corner. Yeah, in oh, the corner. <laughs> there's a microphone coming just this way. Um, hi, Ganesh. Thanks for being here. Um, I was wondering if you would um, bring your Tesla experience, you know, into Moda, like, in the future. Do you think about having a Moda, like, delivery bot, um, <laughs> you know, in one of the nested communities where, um, you know, they are, you know, just jumping on the idea of what you said earlier on industry inertia. So if you can get a delivery bot, you know, going you know, through Moda, then you actually get self-driving car into the city. <laughs> We'll keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> what else? Is Another there? question. Uh, this gentleman here has hand on as well. Yeah. Looking at a mauve cardigan here. Yeah. Hi. Um, so my question is uh, around attitudinal measures. You talked about using behavioral data um, like CRM or um, sort of uh, transactional data. Uh, I'm curious, like, if Moda like looks into the attitude of people, like sort of, uh, you know, things that really aren't really behavioral measures. And then um, the other sort of side question was, you mentioned AI and uh, machine learning. And I'm curious, like, how you define each of them. Because for me, machine learning is something more uh, concrete, but AI is still not very clear uh, in terms of what that really means. So I'm just curious on your thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I'll take the second one first. I mean, semantics aside, uh, you know, um, is ultimately, look, we, uh, which is how do you build a model that's scalable um, as we reach millions of consumers? How do we build a, uh, the tech to uh, process preferences at that scale? And especially complex preferences that, like you said in, in the first part of the question, which could be based on any number of set of motivations, right? It's just how do you understand their motivation behind, like I said, who knows what intent they had coming in and what are they trying to observe and how do we understand that intent when they're shopping and, ex and respond to it in real time and do it at scale. And so I think that's a, a very complex problem that I don't know what AI tools are gonna come, but my point is that in the future, hopefully there will be significant AI uh, evolution that will allow us to, uh, you know, because today, ultimately, we're still to some extent, if you think about machine learning, and there's a lot of debate even this week about how data engineering can have its own biases, right? Uh, I think Congress was having this debate or something, you know, and, and how built-in preferences in some ways also reflect the biases of the people who did the modeling, you know? And so, and in, in that process, you, like one of the, I'll give you an example. When we did the research, uh, we asked consumers about, would you, would you like personalized content? Uh, because you, know, you can use data science to personalize your content. Turned out, they didn't like the idea at all. And the reason was because they don't want, customers don't want to be overtly told, these are the things you're gonna like. Uh, because it makes them feel like you're restricting their ability to be free-thinking individuals. And just because you're correct, doesn't mean that- They like it. Exactly. <laughs> And so one of the ways in which you have to twist this is to present that content as an editorial content. So when, for example, one of the measures Spotify uses is that they will present that as, here's some chill out music, or like, right? Or here's like vacation music, or like, you know, dance music or whatever. So that it's sort of more based on the sort of mood that you may be experiencing. But you think that the chill out tracks that you're listening to and I'm listening to are the same? They're not. Right, because um, it was 100% personalized to the kind of music you typically like to listen to. And so it's a way for them to bridge um, personalization through hard machine learning with a more sort of mood and attitude-based sort of like uh, experience that the customer wants to have. You know? And so it's not to trick the customer right, to some extent, and I'm sure that in that they throw some surprising things into it just to sort of test uh, you know, what the consumer will like. But it's very important as you think about machine learning to realize that it can sometimes even put off clients uh, because of the way you present that, those choices, you know? And so in the future, these kinds of things are hard work for individuals to do because again, and that's where I think AI could be very interesting in the future in sort of thinking about these kinds of spectrum of choice making and, and how to actually intelligently present choices to consumers. Otherwise they'll start throwing you wild cards which could throw everything <laughs> off if people know about it too much. Um, this lady like don't let other people use your Spotify app. <laughs> 
Unless Bad you idea. want to just kind of mess with Spotify's head. Um, I'm looking at Moda Operandi, knowing how it started, and it's, a, uh, I think, I believe, a higher level of product. And, and so it's still very personal. How do you, m in this era of where the consumer is always right, and with the home shopping channels, they return 50% of everything that's ordered, how do you, at Moda Operandi, how do you manage effectively your clients' expectations and keeping them so that they order more of what they keep and and don't and keep the returns down and manage expectations is it a little bit different when the price point is higher um or ha are there conversations around that i know it's a very nuts and bolts it's not super techie but it's very interesting in our culture when things become automated and the consumer becomes more um always right or entitled and i don't like this or i'll leave a bad review or what have you how do you raise your clients' expectations, but still do right by your vendors and everything. Is, is, that a, is that a topic that comes up? Okay, I'll try to cut through the, one of the questions I thought I heard, which is about consumers buying things and returning things mm -hmm. and having that. And I actually may be a minority in this. I think that happens to be a very good thing, right? Because um, first and foremost, you know, like I said earlier, the ability to return creates the ability to buy. Right? Because if they couldn't return something and return it effortlessly, they would buy less. And so, uh, and they, in fact, they buy infrequently because you don't want to get stuck with the item, you don't have the hassle of returning it. And so consistently we see that in, when we actually talk to our consumers, having a very fluid and easy return policy is one of the biggest drivers of e-commerce. Second thing is that a lot of growth in consumer psychology that customers have a much higher propensity to retain items they've already received than to buy new items which is sort of the entire foundation where Stitch Fix is built, mm -hmm. right? Which is that when you receive something at home, you're more likely to keep it than not buying it at all, right? Which I know sounds kind of obvious, but it's, uh, some, you know, and, and I try to communicate this way, which is, let's say uh, you felt like you, you're looking at online and looking at 10 things, and you're like, I'll buy two things. Because you're thinking, I only want those two things. But let's say I saw that you looked at 10 things, and I sent you all those 10 things anyway you're likely to keep four things, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I have to take six things back, but I actually doubled my, my sales. In that, there's a huge bias customers have uh, to, once they experience a product, to retain the product. And so, which is why you're seeing a lot of businesses move into sending boxes home and subscriptions and things like that because of that consumer bias. Sending you ideas, not just showing you ideas. Yes, and so, in the future, I anticipate a lot of business will be done this way, like, People will just send you stuff, and you just keep it, or you return whatever you don't want to. So returns are the way, in, like for me, returns is the mechanism through which you grow your business. So there, is there a risk as well that customers might become frustrated if they suddenly get lots of stuff, and they're like, but I just want to return it, and I never wanted it anyway, and now it's the onus is on me to send uh, it back. But again, like I said, you've seen these businesses become successful, like subscription businesses, right? Because of that very reason, there's a sort of surprise and delight element. Look, obviously, everything's in moderation. You can't overwhelm the customer by selling them 100 things, and neither should you because your economics are going to get kind of screwed. Mm -hmm. but, but, but the point is that there's, a, there's definitely a bias in the consumer's mind that once they experience a, a piece of uh, a clothing, for example, they put it on, they look in the mirror. But there's the same reason, right? Mm -hmm. All through time, when you go to a retail store, why do they want to get people into the fitting room? Because when you put it on, the, the, the desire to buy heightens in, immensely, right? That's the same sort of behavior you're trying to replicate at home. And so I, I think it's important to not see those things as constraints and costs, but rather as opportunities to engage the customer much more deeply and to accept that cost as cost of doing business. Mm -hmm. uh, because look, one of the things I think, find funny is everybody knows 40 to 50% of e-commerce clothing gets returned. So why do we make customers pay for it? Because the fact is, it's a behavior that customers are engaging in anyway, so remove the friction. Don't even, don't let them pay for it. Let them just take all the items they want, take it home, and just return the stuff they don't want, and then just they can charge the rest. Because it's a behavior I'm engaging in anyway, so I might as well remove the friction and weaponize that behavior, right? And so it's, uh, it's I know it's counterintuitive thinking because we always think in terms of the constraints we face versus the ways in which you can engage the customer in a, more, in a deeper way that allows them to actually consume more. And so, um, anyway, so I don't know if that made sense to you or not, but, but nevertheless, that's kind of how we think about it, which is removing friction 
and, 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 and allowing customers to experience things uh, actually ends up making them consume more. And, and that's kind of what you want ultimately versus creating barriers that actually prevent them from actually ending up doing the things they kind of want to do, but they're like, oh, but they make it really hard on me. And so that's why you're seeing this massive momentum driven by Amazon and others to improve service levels constantly, right? Because the ease of doing that allows people to get more uh, into their homes. So anyway, I'll leave it there. I think we're out of time. I, we are out of time. Uh, we have to leave it there on weaponizing the consumer. But I feel like that is a good place uh, to leave it. I'm sorry to everybody for whom we didn't get to your questions, but um, uh, we'll hopefully find some time uh, later to do that. Uh, Ganesh, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for listening, and be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or visit the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast homepage to sign up for invites to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this event series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.